Romans 1. We're going to start at verse uh, 16 and give you a little bit of an introduction while it's uh, rumbling around in my brain. Um, Rosaria Butterfield is probably someone you're familiar with. Uh, she was a uh, English professor. I think she was like a women's studies professor or something like that at Syracuse University in New York. Uh, she had to do a project for one of her classes, um, and that project was basically studying a select group. She decided to study uh, traditional Christians, like fundamentalist Christians, basically, and one of her neighbors happened to be a Reformed Presbyterian pastor. And she reached out to him, asked if she could ask him questions. Well, they began to develop a friendship. Long story short, this woman who is rabidly anti-Christian, uh, was in a homosexual relationship, was married to a woman, all these different things. Like she was, you know, all up in it. She was converted to Christ uh, through this pastor and his wife's hospitality, even though she uh, didn't go into it thinking that. That was certainly uh, the Lord's intention, it appears. But anyway, she's uh, she's... If you followed her at all, you'd notice that, that she's been uh, experiencing sanctification in some of her, her views, as, as we all do. But because of the radical nature of her conversion, she was thrust into the spotlight pretty immediately. Um, and, you know, whether that be a man or a woman, they're obviously going to have some views at first that need some outworking. Um, she, initially, she struggled with, if my memory serves, uh, whether or not we should um, use people's pronouns that they prefer, but now she is has repented of that and publicly done so. If you uh, read, <clears throat> I know Tasha's read it, and I can't remember who has it now, but it's uh, Five Lies Christians Believe or something like that, Five Lies of the Modern Age or something like that. She just wrote it, and in the very first, at the beginning of the book, she walks through some issues that she repented of, right? It shows you how she used to think like this, but now she understands through scripture and all that, that it's better to think like that. I had it in the church library, but I think uh, after Tasha finished it, she handed it off to somebody else, if I remember. But if not, it's over there. Um, Rosario Butterfield, uh, Five Lies, Christians Believe, or something like that. But anyway, how does she play into this? Well, she was on a podcast recently that I listened to, and I was, uh, I've always liked her, but I was even more impressed with her after this interview than I've been thus far. And she recommended this, the New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. And if you look at uh, the first few pages, you see uh, the copyright. This was printed in 2022 um, with uh, working between Gospel Reformation Network, which is a PCA network of uh, conservatives, um, and then the Abounding Grace Radio, uh, which is, uh, ironically enough, uh, they're they're kind of antinomian. Um, I know y'all maybe wouldn't know that, but it's just weird thing to see these two groups come together. But I was impressed because uh, Christopher Gordon is hardly someone I would think to take a, a hard stance on this, but he does here. Uh, so what I'm going to do after I read Romans one and offer a few comments is we're going to work through quickly. Uh, all of or most of this uh, catechism um, and then 
as that as we read through it it will just guide our discussion please uh, don't hesitate to stop me or ask any questions um but what he does in the catechism is he frames basically a handful of que- or several handfuls of questions from the heidelberg catechism around sexual issues right so uh it's not really i mean i guess you could say it kind of is but it's like a, a standard catechism where it's written for people in the church, right? It's not an apologetic tool necessarily. It's for the instruction of Christians, right? So, um, of course, you could use it in an apologetic nature, uh, but you'll see the way the language is framed. It's, it's saying uh, things like, how do I think of my identity? Well, your identity is in Christ. Well, that's obviously not true of someone who's not a Christian, Right, so you'll see how he gears it towards those who are in Christ and how to view themselves uh, based on their uh, sexuality and, and whatnot. So before I read Romans 1, I want to ask you a few questions, just hypotheticals, and you can think about it, and maybe this will um, frame some comments you may have later. <clears throat> in, in today's world, uh, many, I would argue, Probably most people are one, maybe two levels removed from knowing someone who is either homosexual or transgender. Right? And when I say one or two levels, I mean your friend or your friend's friend or your, your child or your grandchild, you know, one level, two level, that kind of thing. I would imagine that most of us in this room know someone who is or we're related to someone who is homosexual or transgender, or we know someone who knows someone who is. Right? It's, it's getting closer and closer. I can remember when I was growing up, it was just like you knew maybe if someone was a homosexual, but it wasn't so open. Right? They would never just come out and say it. Certainly not transgender and cross-dressing as a serious statement. People did it to be silly, of course, even that was done in plays for a long time. But so how many levels are you removed from someone that claims to be homosexual or transgender? Second question, what would you say to them with the opportunity? Uh, what would you say to them with the opportunity? How would you, as an elder or deacon or father or even a friend, counsel someone who is a church member if they came to you with questions about this? Or how would you prepare your child or your grandchild? Um, we were at, where were we at, Jude? Birmingham? Uh, Birmingham and for General Assembly a few years ago. And Jude saw for the first time a, a transgender person, a man dressed like a woman. And it scared him to death. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't mean in a funny way. Like, he cried. He just didn't have the framework for it. And that was see, two summers ago, so I guess you were almost eight, right? And I mean, we had to have several talks, you know, after that. He was, he was scared to death. They were at some museum, right? Yeah, a museum in downtown Birmingham, and this guy dressed like a woman. And that's the first time he had encountered it. So don't think that you're just going to be able to, kind of like when we were younger, you know, you, you didn't really have to talk about it so much because you probably wouldn't encounter somebody. But now you do, right? And you need to have a framework for it and a way to think about it. So that's what we're going to do. 
And last thing before I read Romans 1 and we get into the catechism, I want to remind you, uh, because especially when this gets close, we don't always want to rightly identify these things as sinful. We want to say, well, you know, they're just messed up. They're broken. They need help. Right? All those things are true, but they're messed up, they're broken, and they need help because sin is rooted deeply in their hearts. Right? And all of these matters that come from this, it's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of righteousness. Right? And by God's grace, we've been brought into Christ, and those who are outside of Christ, we need to be able to call these things what they are. All right, so Romans 1, verses 16 through uh, 32 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation that, uh, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? So what a, a wonderful thing to lead with, right? You're, you're going to be confronting and thinking about these things. What's the power of God to salvation for these people? It's the gospel. You cannot be ashamed of it. Uh, for therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. All right. So, verse 18. I'm sure you're familiar with this section. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So, wrath of God revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Who are those who are ungodly and unrighteous? There are those who hold the truth in unrighteousness, basically for those who reject the truth. He gets into that even more now, those who reject the truth. Because, why is it the case that the wrath of God is revealed upon them? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Notice where that's rooted, in them, right? So there's this uh, the image of God, uh, the, I think the Latin, uh, not using image of God, but uh, the census uh, divinitatis, is that right? Yeah, um, just this internal sense of God that all men have. This is why you hear people say things like there's no such thing as an atheist, right? Um, all, or God says, that which may be known of him is made known or manifested in them for... Why is it manifested in them? Well, it's not because of anything they've done. Because God hath showed it unto them. Right? So God reveals all this unto to men, within them even. For, verse 20, the invisible things of him, so from God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Isn't that ironic? The invisible things are clearly seen. Uh, being understood by the things that are made. So through that which is made, through nature, creation, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. But they became vain in their imaginations and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, right? So those who have these things in them, those who see these things out there and know them, the invisible things that are clearly seen, right? That should really shake the way we think about that which is invisible and kind of goes back to some of our discussions in Colossians. That which is invisible is just as real, indeed, in some sense, more real, 
than what is seen. Those who have rejected this became vain in their imaginations, verse 21, and their foolish hearts was darkened. More, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, right? Those who reject God often imagine themselves to be the wisest and are actually the most foolish. What did they do? Verse 23, they changed the glory of, God, of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Right? So they worship the creature rather than the creator. Wherefore, so because of this, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Those who change the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than or rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, again, God is building upon the judgments. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, female homosexuality, and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. So homosexuality is a root or a fruit of rejecting God. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense, that repayment of their error, which was meet or suitable. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, right? so they have that inner knowledge of God, but they want to push it out, as it were, and because of that, God allowed them to, to have another mind, as it were. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not appropriate or proper, convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure, or they approve of those that do them. Okay, so Paul is kind of delineating into two separate things there at the end that those uh, people are filled with verse 29, verse 30, and because of that, they come to have verse 31 without understanding, even though they know the judgment of God, they push it out. Uh, Verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they hated what was revealed within them. And therefore, God gave them further over to judgment. Now, behind this is not, like you don't need to think about people who are born innocent, then they decide to sin, and then God gives them over to this judgment. We are born as sinners, all of us. We have original sin that we inherit through our father Adam, but we also have actual sin. And out of original sin, all sin comes, right? So uh, you can't say, I was born this way. We'll get to that in just a second. You can't say, well, I've always felt this way. I've always done this. I've always done that. 
because you are born a sinner. And just because you desire or feel something doesn't mean that because you can't remember never doing it, that it's a good thing, that it's a natural thing. Um, but before I, I talk all the way around the catechism, we're just going to start reading it. Uh, but notice, just in Romans 1, it makes it evidently clear. Homosexuality, and by extension, those things that are worse than homosexuality, because transgenderism is, in a sense... Um, homosexuality is a sin. It comes from vile passions. Right? It comes from the heart. And those passions, those further sins that you commit in that, come from sin itself. Right? So it's not a neutral person deciding to do something sinful. It's a sinful person being given over to more sin. All right? And you have to realize that because you can't just go back to the homosexuality and say, okay, as long as we don't act on this, we're okay. No, that which proceeds from sin is sin. And that which preceded sin is also going to be sin. It doesn't come from an innocent or a natural affection. So let's start with... Uh, I ask a quick yes. On the, on the progression that he, that he gives lays out um, God gave them over God gave them over uh-huh. um, being, okay verse 29 being filled with all unrighteousness sexual morality wickedness now that those sins that are shown after the sexual sins morality uh, those certainly are sins that are easily found in anyone who is not necessarily given over to sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not saying that those sins are all as a result of the sexual immorality. No, no, no. What he does when, in my estimation, what he does when he gets to verse 29 is he kind of goes back yeah. to the more basic sins Mm -hmm. that are still sins in some sense, although as our catechism rightly shows, and I think Paul is arguing here, that not all sin is equally heinous, um, but that he goes back to these more basic things, and because these basic things are cherished in the heart, and the truth of God is rejected, greater sin then comes from it, right? So what you have is these more, again, verse 29, verse 30, Verse 31, those who uh, do this, they know the judgment of God. They have the uh, knowledge of God, but they don't like to retain it. So they go on from, uh, from sin to sin. Just like he says about uh, the gospel in verse 17, going from faith to faith, you could say that in this section that he's arguing that sinners go from one sin to to the next, that sin gives birth to more sin, especially when those, you know, like you said, because in verse 29 through 31, that's true of all of us in a sense, right? But we don't do what verse 32 says because of the mercy of Christ. We seek forgiveness for verses 29 to 31, but... We don't do what verse 32 says. We don't look at the judgment of God and those who commit these sins and have pleasure in them. 
we turn from them, right? And those who don't turn from them, God gives over to a reprobate mind, right? What we have a hard, not we necessarily, but society in general and the church, what we have a hard time explaining to people, and I I would say a hard time believing, is that these things come because sin came before them and it was not handled properly. It is, as you say, a progression, right? That you move from one type of sin to the next. Um, so let's, uh, let's go through some of the catechism stuff. Um, starting at verse, or verse question one on page 11 of the little handbook I gave you. So share uh, if you can. Uh, if you'd also just like to listen, that's fine as well. These are only like five bucks a piece. You can find them very easily on Amazon. I tried to see if there was a free PDF of them online in case you wanted to print them out. I couldn't find one. So I think if you want it, you're going to have to buy it. Um, but I'll have these in the, the church lobby or whatever. If I need to order some more, I can. But So why is it comforting that we have a new identity in Christ? All right, so I'm being remade into the image of Christ to have a true identity in body and soul throughout the whole course of my life to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. He redeemed my life with the precious blood of His Son and has delivered me from the lie of Satan in the garden. He also watches over me in such a way that He might free me from all sexual impurity as the temple of His indwelling. In fact, all things must work together to remake me into the image of His Son. Because I have this new identity, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of God's steadfast love and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready. So notice the target here is those who um, struggle with like homosexual attraction, right? Or who have been homosexual in their actions in the past. Or those who have been transgender in the past. Which is why he says that God watches over me in such a way that he might free me from all sexual impurity. Yes, that's true for everybody. But this, this catechism has a target. Right? And that we don't have to uh, wonder who that is. Let's look at the next question. Uh, I guess there's a term to page 12. Uh, makes me wholeheartedly uh, willing and ready. Now on page 12. From now on to enjoy true freedom as a new creation. So true freedom for a person coming out of this lifestyle into Christ is living as a renewed person in Christ. Not living in that old identity, right? but having a true and new identity in Christ. And he says this in question number two. What must I know about human sexuality and my new identity in Christ? Three things. First... How great my unholy desires. Notice he doesn't just say desires. How great my unholy desires and sexual sins are. They're not neutral. They're sinful. They're unholy. Second, how I am set free from bondage. You're enslaved, if you have these things, to my unholy desires and sexual sins. Third, how I am to lead a thankful life of sexual purity in union with Christ. Okay? Now, don't, don't uh, have an issue with the way he's uh, presenting this. Don't say, well, this is true of all of us. Yes, 
Okay, in some sense, we all have sexual sin. Yes, whatever. But the target is those who are dealing with homosexuality, transgender issues, and how to counsel Christians on these things who are um, having issues with how to deal with it. Then he goes into question three. Thankfully, he tells us how many sexes God made at creation. Notice he doesn't say gender, and we'll get to that in question six. I'm not going to read every question. Uh, what does God require of us in making us in his image? Uh, in question four, he requires the same thing in general. That is, in Christ, we're all required to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves. Question five, why did God make us male and female? So here's his answer. That we might use all the excellent qualities with which he made us in true righteousness and holiness in body and soul, as male and female, for his glory, as we exercise dominion over the earth. So here's something, question six, that maybe you hadn't thought about, but people that do a lot of work in this field that are really trying to minister to those uh, who have these issues have begun to make a big deal out of this. And I think we, we should you know, pay attention to it. Uh, question six, but aren't we able to make a distinction between biological sex and gender in search of our identity. Behind that question is, I have these parts, but I'm going to choose to identify as this. Can't we make that distinction? That biologically I may be this, but in identity I may be that. Right? Transgender kind of stuff. No... God established a natural order in the creation of male and female that is good for us as image bearers of God. To introduce gender, so gender is downstream from sex in the way that he's using it, to introduce gender as a new category of personhood separate from the biological category of sex in pursuit of a different sexual identity is unnatural to the creation order and harmful to the purpose for which God made us. Notice what he's connecting there. Right? That in creation, God made us male and female, and what we look like is what we are. Right? You don't get to pick and choose. Those two things, gender and sex, as he's talking about them, cannot be separated. Then he addresses the, the super, super, super common objection. You get this objection with sexual issues, and you also get it with abortion issues. Right? They bring up a super small percentage of people or issues to try to overthrow the entire rule. He says in question 7, aren't some people born sexually indeterminate? Meaning like birth defects, that kind of thing. He says, a small percentage of people are indeed born sexually indeterminate due to the fall. That doesn't mean that they are in, that they're born that way because they sin in some way in the womb. That's just meaning because the fall affects everything that these things come to be. But such are, by definition, anomalies. And in medicine, and not just in medicine, in logic, anomalies, rare things, never negate objective categories of personhood. So rare things never... Um, the exception doesn't change the rule. right? It's kind of the idea that he's getting at here. There might be exceptions, but it doesn't change the rule because rules are rules. Trent, yes. I think like eunuchs would fall under that. 
Do I think Unix would fall under that, the anomaly? Born Unix. Born Unix, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, but even in a, a Unix case, you have the... You I'm still the, have the parts. Yes, right. And the, the appearance as well, right? That right. their insides, their hormones are directed a certain way. You're not really directed both ways when you're born as a eunuch. Um, but yes. Uh, so he says, we may not use the existence of anomalies to change or redefine the creational order that God has established as good. All right, so question eight. Does God permit us to change our sex? Certainly not. To reverse how God created us as male or female due to fallen, unchosen thoughts, and self-perceptions would be an act of rebellion. Notice he grounds it in fallenness, in sinfulness, right? Not saying that these people committed some sin when they were born or committed some sin when they were born in their mother's womb or when they were conceived in their mother's womb, but that due to the fallen nature of man as inherited from Adam, these unchosen thoughts, though they may be, these self-perceptions are still part of our rebellion against God and must be brought under the redemption of Christ. He says they are a gross distortion of God's creative handiwork and specifically forming us for his own glory. Further, in the New Jerusalem, any genital mutilation or confusion over sexual orientation identity will be restored in our new resurrection bodies. Andrew and I were talking about this the other day, and I'd never even thought about it. Before I got this in the mail, he said, you know, one of the ironic things about people who have sex change surgeries in life and then later become Christians is that in the resurrection, they will be the thing that they change themselves from being, right? But not only for the redeemed, but also for the damned. Those who undergo these surgeries, their resurrection body, it's not perfected in the sense that ours is perfected unto righteousness, but it is given a certain quality that enables it to last forever. And it will be part of that original state in which God made them. Um, therefore, he says, we should not change our sex since God promises to glorify our bodies in everlasting happiness as he created us male and female in the final resurrection. Uh, then he goes through marriage, um, what it is, Again, remember, he's appealing to those who struggle with homosexuality. He gets through these six different purposes of marriage. Turn over to page 16. Uh, he addresses on page 16 in question 12, does the Lord permit sexual intimacy outside of marriage? No. Uh, what's the Christian position on divorce? Uh, I appreciate how he led with this because so often when we talk about divorce, we lead with the permissions for divorce rather than God's view of divorce that comes first. Right? God's first view of divorce is let no man put asunder what God has joined together. Right? That's the first thing. The second thing is there are biblical grounds for divorce, though. Right? And he addresses that in 14, the standard not just reform, but traditional Christian position, adultery, and abandonment. But he says, top of page 17, these are exceptions to the general rule not to divorce. Then he addresses God, does God permit same-sex marriage? No. 
And then in the second half of the answer, governments do not have the authority to change marriage into something contrary to what God instituted at creation. All right, so I didn't point this out, but like I said, he follows the rhythm of the Heidelberg Catechism where the first question is kind of introductory. And then you noticed at question three, he began with part one, which was creation. And now at question 16, you see fall. And then uh, he's got section three on page 20 with redemption. Section four is restoration. And that'll be the last one. Let me pick through a few questions here. Just yes. A question. Does he, does, do you have, assuming you've gone through the whole catechism, mm -hmm. does he address the uh, Alistair Bank position? No. Okay. No. I mean, maybe he would if it was written this year. But okay. it was 2022, so. Okay. Uh, Which is what? Alistair Begg. I know Alistair Begg. I mean, yeah, so he was recently asked on a podcast episode that he did um, by some lady, I don't think she goes to his church, but uh, <coughs> asked him, she had, I believe it was a grandson who was marrying a transgender person. <laughs> I don't know if they had, you know, it was a man decided to be a woman or a woman decided to be a man. I don't, I don't ever remember hearing that detail. But uh, the grandmother was wondering what she should do. Should she go to the wedding? Well, guess what Alice Beck said? Yes. Yes. Do the exact opposite of what she thinks you're going, or what he thinks you're going to do, and give him a gift. Right? This is Alice Beck now. <laughs> it it right. really sent a ripple through the reform world uh, online. But it'll have its its lasting effect too. And immediately he was uh, defensive. He preached a horrible sermon from the prodigal son on Luke 15, uh, calling everybody who disagreed with him Pharisees. Uh, uh, John MacArthur immediately removed him from the Shepherds Conference uh, for this year. Uh, these different Christian radios that produce that uh, replay his sermons quit replaying them. They took him off and they made a statement about it. And all that. Uh, it's really bizarre, you know, because Alistair Begg is, uh, as far as, not necessarily intellectual capabilities, but just as far as his, Dispositor. well, just as far as his, like, the level of society he worked at within the reform world, I mean, he was up there with, like, MacArthur, mm -hmm. R.C. Sproul, really good preacher. yeah, he is, and it was super surprising, worse than his answer was his defense, though. Mm -hmm. He double, triple down, and uh, yeah, it wasn't good. So Larry's saying, uh, does this catechism say what Christians should do about a homosexual transgender marriage, basically? And no, it doesn't, um, like, as far as attending one. Obviously, we, we shouldn't under any circumstances, uh, but yeah, that was my question. It took me, what, three seconds? Didn't have to hem and haul around or make exceptions. Uh, anyway, um, so with, within the fall section, he has questions like, with what lie did Satan tempt our first parents in the garden? And he talks about how they, how Satan presented God as deceptive and, and all that stuff. And then on uh, question 17, this is important. Um, and this is very much in line with our shorter catechism. What happened to our desires, page 18, question 17, what happened to our desires in the fall 
of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. All the desires of the human heart, not some of them, all the desires of the human heart, even though they may be unchosen, have become distorted and fallen in the sin of our first parents. These desires cannot be trusted, since we have a natural tendency to be led away by various passions. Right? He's talking about our desires within the fall, considered outside of Christ. Of course, we as Christians have renewed desires, and it's not that we trust our desires now as Christians per se, but we do trust Christ working in us, right? that we're able to will and think and do that which is good. But when we're outside of Christ, these desires cannot be trusted. They cannot provide a framework for which we frame our whole identity. Then, very modern question, question 18, but didn't God create us to be happy and following the desires of our hearts? Answer, God made us holy and happy, meaning in Adam, before sin, we were holy and happy. We, however, accepting the lie of the devil, notice how he's uniting us with Adam, we sin with him and in him, have robbed ourselves of this happiness by obeying sinful desires. It's like we repeat the sin of Adam, but we do it with the original sin of Adam already present in us. Isn't there a difference? This is an important question. John, you and I were talking about this the other day. Question 19, isn't there a difference between temptation and the practice of evil desires? Answer, God requires that we avoid entering into all forms of temptation. Remember the Lord's Prayer, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Temptation is not sin when it originates outside of us. Temptation becomes sin when we entertain and welcome the sinful desires of our hearts and act upon them. Then he goes further, right? That's temptation in general. This is a good one here, question 20. Are we able to make a distinction between entertaining a sinful desire and choosing to live in that desire? Answer, God condemns desires that are contrary to his law as well as our actual sins, right? So the desire itself, if it's contrary to God's law, is sinful, as well as the act that may or may not proceed from it. The, these contrary desires are sinful, even if they are unchosen, since they proceed from a corrupt heart. All impure thoughts and desires, prior to the conscious act of the will, are considered sin in God's eyes. Right? Even if you don't choose it, if it's sinful, it's sinful. Right? And it's to be mortified. It's to be put to death. The Puritans, I, well, I don't want to say the Puritans in general. I've read Thomas Boston in the Fourfold State before, and he really works out this, I forget which section it's in. Um, but it leads him to say that we should... Um, when we remember our dreams in which we do sinful things, we need to view those as proceeding from our sinful nature as well and seek forgiveness for them. Our dreams. You don't get any more unconscious than your dreams. But they're not, you know, an outer body experience. They proceed from something within us, and we need to be cleansed from them. So Boston's argument goes. Very similar idea going on here, that even those things that are not conscious acts of your will, they can be sinful 
Even though you may not sin in light of them, they are sinful desires and must be confessed and put under the blood of Christ. Question 21, what kinds of sinful desires and deeds does God's law condemn? Then he quotes Matthew 15, verse 18 to 20. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. All right. Will God permit our sinful desires to go unpunished? Look what he does here. Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our sinful desires, as well as our actual sins. Desires, sins. When he says our, right? notice what he's talking about. God will punish every idle thought, careless word, or wicked action by a just judgment, both now and in eternity. As the Bible declares, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Meaning we will have to answer for our sinful desires and actual sins as well. Our careless words, out of thoughts, wicked actions. All right, and then in the redemption section, right? so it's not all condemnation. What has Jesus accomplished for me in the gospel with regard to all forms of sexual sin? Through, through true faith and the promise of God's word, wholehearted trust in Christ, by the gospel, God has freely granted, not only to others, that's such an important thing to say because so many people who act like this, like who, who struggle with these issues, they think that God only gives this freedom and redemption to some, right? That he gives them a partial salvation, as it were, or a salvation that doesn't reach to these desires, right? He says that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also. Salvation is... One and the same. The forgiveness of all my sexual trespasses, canceling of all my guilt, and meriting for me eternal righteousness and salvation. Question 24. How does the truth of the gospel set us free with regard to sexual sin? Since I died, was buried, and have been raised with Christ, Romans 6, through his death and resurrection, I am set free from slavery to any form of sexual sin. Christ has broken its dominion over me, and I now live with a renewed desire to reckon myself dead to my old way of sexual immorality, but alive to God and pursuing a sexually pure life for his glory. Since I am no longer my own, but have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, what new identity has Christ achieved for me? By faith, I am joined to Christ as a new creature. So I share in his identity, on page 22 now, in my new identity... I am satisfied in God's love as his adopted child. I am to think of myself as purchased, accepted, valued, and protected. And I am to find it a great delight to be remade in the image of Christ in true righteousness and holiness. Right? So this, for anybody who has experienced a conversion later in life, especially for those who have been delivered out of a, profound a profoundly wicked background, this is a very useful section. That you in Christ are to view yourself as you ought to be. You are being satisfied in God's love. Thinking of yourself as purchased, accepted, valued, and protected. But it's in Christ as you're being remade in his image. Why are all forms of sexual immorality incompatible 
with my union with Christ. So here he doesn't just address the homosexual and the transgender, but also the fornicator in general, those who may only do these things in a heterosexual way. Since I have become one with Christ in body and spirit, any form of sexual immorality invites that which is profane into my holy union with Christ. Therefore, I'm called to be one with Christ by fleeing all forms of sexual immorality. Here's useful uh, practice for all of us. We're almost done. Uh, what does God call us to do when we fall into sexual sin? So again, anybody. When I commit any form of sexual sin, look at where he goes here. Even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any of God's commandments. Right? Hetero, homo, transgender, whatever. I should confess my sins to him. Eagerly turn away from all sexual sin and seek to walk. In the newness of life. Is God angry with his children who still struggle, struggle in their striving to put away sexual immorality? God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. When we come to God with a broken and contrite heart, confessing and turning away from our sins, God promises to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So is God angry? Yes, but... right. He has declared, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What about believers who fight against same-sex attraction, but continue to experience shame and guilt for these desires? Answer, bottom of page 23, God in the gospel of his son, that's a hymn by the way, has announced that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Any unholy desire, even if unchosen, such as, but not limited to, same-sex attraction is covered by the blood of Christ. Believers who continue to struggle against same-sex attraction should trust in God's forgiving mercies with earnest purpose, by the strength of the Spirit, strive to live in the newness of life. Notice he doesn't say wait for the change. He says strive to live in the newness of life. Further, the body of Christ should not avoid or shun those who struggle against any sexual sin. Notice he said struggle. Right? Not rejoice in, parade in, or those kind of things. I firmly believe that we need to be ready and willing to protect our congregation from people who seek to like, come and promote these things. Right? That have these agendas to come in and... Uh, take advantage of Christ's sheep as a wolf. But that's not who he's talking about. He's talking about those who struggle against these sexual sins. People who are truly desiring to live in Christ. If they struggle with this and are trying to put it to death, we should not avoid them and we should not shun them. Instead, believers with a spirit of compassion should bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Since we have been delivered from all sexual sin, why should we pursue a life of sexual purity? He goes into these different things. Then he has a helpful uh, situation or helpful explanation uh, on pornography. Not a bad definition. Uh, bottom of page 25. Pornography is sexually explicit material produced to serve lustful desires of the flesh, activated through the channel of the eye, through the looking upon of naked images of males and females for the purpose of sexual arousal. 
32, why is pornography so destructive? Because these things are connected, friends. These things are connected. So often it's people that have been given over to pornography early in life that end up in these sexually uh, debauch-filled, debauchery-filled situations. Why is it so destructive? Because the use of such images ruins the sexual intimacy intended for marriage, supports idolatry in the worship of the creature, that's Romans 1, dehumanizes men and women, promoting abuse, especially of women, advances other forms of sexual impurity, creates idleness in society to the harm of our neighbors, and degrades the mind into darkness. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their unholy desires and unrepentant of their sexual ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no sexually immoral person, no adulterer, no fornicator, no homosexual, no abuser of women or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. What is involved in genuine repentance of all sexual sin? Two things. The dying away of the old self by hating all forms of sexual immorality and fleeing from it. And, notice repentance is not just the first step. And the rising to life of the new self, putting off the old, putting on the new, by finding great joy in leading a sexually pure life, and if married, by properly loving our spouses. Then he goes into how husbands should seek to love and honor their wives, because people who are reading through this catechism are going to need that instruction, like, how do I do it? If I'm going to be married and have these desires, husbands, wives, that's 35, 36, then he addresses singles. Question 37. How should singles honor the Lord in the situation that God has called them? Singles who desire marriage, bottom page 28, are called to contentment and prayer, trusting the Lord in every circumstance as he knows best for us. Yet, realizing that only Christ makes us fulfilled, that ultimate joy is found in Christ, whether as single or married. Singles who do not desire marriage are called to holiness and body and spirit in the special opportunities they have to give undivided devotion to the Lord, yet should remain open to God's will to provide a spouse and change one's desire for marriage. How the family is to be maintained is question 38. What is God's will for parents in training their children in proper sexuality? So it's a good practical question. How do we train our children to view these things properly? The first thing, bottom of page 29, is parents model before their children a loving relationship. And hold marriage in honor as it was designed by God. Second, parents speak to their children appropriately and sufficiently about biblical sexuality and proper sexual conduct as designed for marriage, realizing that our children are facing daily misinformation on sexuality. When people discover this book many, many years from now, they will know that it was written in the 21st century by the term misinformation. <laughs> what a modern word. Uh, the third thing, parents guard their children, uh, parents are to guard their children from all forms of sexual immorality and pornography, overseeing the use of technology, social media, and other mediums that promote, through cultural peer pressure, a different sexual ethic than what God has made as good in creation. Then he speaks about how uh, young adults honor their parents with their sexual conduct, and then how do we love those who live in sexual sin? Right. That's the whole thing. Um, we read most of it, not all of it, but uh, 
If you want the copy that I gave you, uh, please take it. Um, I'm going to have whatever's left. I'll have it on the table in the, the congregational building, congregational eating um, house, the sanctuary. Um, and if I need to order more, I certainly will. Uh, any questions, thoughts? I think that um, the um, yeah, like the target mostly is within the Christian is within the Christian framework. Uh, probably one of the most challenging. It's one thing when somebody's coming to you or has a problem and within the Christian framework, and it's another thing when people, uh, of course, I mean this is so basic. It's like this is basic to any sin, and that is that they don't believe. That you're born with sin, mm -hmm. and um, or have no no desire. There's no enlightenment by the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. uh, at all. Um, and uh, so, so, I mean, that's nothing new. I mean, I'm just saying that to, to get the to get people's attention about a lifestyle they're into, I think is one of the first easiest ways is. If you can ever talk to somebody and say, "Are you really happy?" Are you, does that, you know, when you, when you, in spite of what an unbeliever's, they're in a, a lifestyle or just a, thr thrown over to this type of thing, um, they may claim they're happy, but if you strip away the layers, no matter how much they claim they're happy. Mm -hmm. uh, I think invariably there's a there's an unhappiness deep down oh, inside. Yeah. Also, all these kids that are th thrown over to this stuff, and, and part of it is a today it's 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 become a mushrooming a a progressively um, that's, I don't want to use the progressive. Uh, it's become a, a mushrooming thing. It, it, it's exponential almost in mm -hmm. its in its uh, reach. Because it's almost like a, a cultural thing. Kids see it and they try and say, "Oh, I want to be like this yeah. type of thing." It, it's it's growing at an exponential rate. But I would bet anybody who falls into this category, you strip it aside, they're never happy. There's something always deep down inside. So that may be an area to reach in if you're trying to reach somebody. I know mm -hmm. it's easier said than done, but. I'm just saying, uh, if you peel away the layer and say, you know, there's always some something that's missing in yeah. their life, no matter how much they think they're gonna, they're happy with mm. this. I'm finally happy, or uh, we've been married for 40 years, and look at how happy we are. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. Down no. deep in, in life, I don't. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, practically, don't. You know, just in general, let me counsel you to not. Apologies, guys. I've got a cousin coming from Atlanta. Okay. No problem. Don't be afraid or ashamed to use the Bible or biblical argumentation yeah. when you talk with people like this. Right? Um, yeah. The Word of God is powerful Sharp. unto salvation, sharper than any two edged sword. Like God yeah. works through that. That's not the only thing you, you should use, sure. but you should use it. 
Yeah. Uh, you can use rational argumentation like you see Paul using in, in Acts 17 and all that stuff. Um, but like, and just in my brief experience in counseling too, uh, what people often present as the thing is not the thing. It's something that they have chose to mask over the real issue. Right, so mm-hmm. you're you're really touching on something good um, when people say, well, you know, this this can't be wrong. I'm happy, right? And maybe one way to prod back to them, no, you're not. And here's why you're not happy, because God made you this way, and you know that, <coughs> and you're in rebellion against it, right? Those kind of things, right? Yep, that you yep. can draw the conversations that way, because so many people lead themselves into deep dark. I mean, ultimately apostasy, but deep and dark destruction of their Christian faith and ultimately deny the Lord because they carve out a place for someone in their life who struggles with one of these things. And they just can't imagine that the person that they love and care for, maybe it's their child or friend or something, that they are sinful or that their desires come from sin. Um... There's a, a lady who um, caused tremendous problems in the Reformed Church over the past decade, really, but more like the last five or six years or so. And she was defended and propped up by conservatives as, you know, she's a good woman, she's teaching sound doctrine, she's just trying to get you to open your mind to this. But there were several people all along the way saying, no. What she's saying is it's egalitarian. It's actually doing away with male-female distinction. Uh, What she's saying is going to lead us to women's ordination, if we believe what what she says. And, you know, the people defending her were like, no, no, no. But it was just so weird how she would make these obscure arguments and be ashamed of traditional reform teaching, but pro-modern liberal teaching. Well... Long story short, come to find out after she leaves the conservative churches that were defending her because now she's being abused and blah, 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 no longer being defended is really what was what is happening. Turns out she has a homosexual son. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's just like, okay, we see what it is. Right? That she was apparently carving out this place in her life where she's like, no. He's untouchable because he's mine. I love him. He can't be wrong. God made him this way. Like those kind of things. Right, so don't don't give an inch on this kind of stuff. There's a way to love people in the truth without denying the truth. And we certainly need to. Uh, those are good recover. areas to. I think that deserves more discussion. Uh, eventually, not here, but. Uh, from the standpoint, because that's the people we meet most of, most of the time. Mm-hmm. I think it deserves, from a Christian standpoint, a part of that is, is knowing scripture, uh, just the ways of, what does that look like in real life, mm-hmm. you know, type of thing. I mean, I mean, not that, we, I think we know what it looks like, it's just, I'm just saying. You mean, very, like, uh, uh, you know, where you have to learn how to love someone in the truth, even though it hurts? Right, right, yeah. right, the whole 
I think the seriousness ultimately of it is the the fact that the person who are involved in said activities have basically chosen to be anti-God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to look at it anything less than that um, is very dangerous because justifying anti-God in a church setting, it can't happen. Yeah. In, in, a, in a church anywhere, setting, I'm talking about See that again. That's my premise on this whole thing. Is in a in a in a church set in a let's say a Christian environment or um, it clearly is. It's it's well. That's Paul's argument in Romans one. Yeah. Right. That the people who not just you know have these initial sinful desires and temptations, but those who glory in them, those who approve of those who do them, right are given over to worse than themselves because, not just they're sinners in general, because we're all sinners in general, but because they reject God. They suppress the truth. And accept, and the very last thing was accept their behavior. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend, friend of mine who was homosexual, mm-hmm. was extreme, he renounced everything when he found Christ. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything, yeah. and he struggled with it, and struggled yeah. with it, and he has to maintain, even uh, you know, maintain himself in a struggled way. And I think he's done done good. Yeah. Um, well, that that entire lifestyle, like, and everything that flows from it, is anti God. Like, like Sean said, um, like this is why, like, you have those those people who they'll be like uh, LGBT for Trump. Yeah. Right. What a what a slippery slope. Like not that Trump is the ultimate standard. Right. But, you know, people who claim to be on this side but actually conservative. Yeah. Politically, they just don't like high taxes. Right. I mean, that's their thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not actually within the the realm of being conservative, and certainly not uh, Christian. Right. And this should also inform the way we, you know, think about political alliances too. Because you know, cozying up with people who uh, reject your God, yeah, oh yeah, is, is a dangerous thing. Uh, so, Mr. Larry, you got to say something? Yeah, I, I uh, a couple thoughts I have. Number one is, um, and this relates to uh, talking to other Christians, brothers that are struggling, is you know. In, on one on the one hand, I actually, and sometimes I, I say this, I thank God that, brother, you're convicted of your sin mm-hmm. because it's the evidence of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. working in your life. And now now you need to repent and you know and, and not and not quench the spirit, not deny the Holy Spirit because you know the difference between, a brother who there's really hope and there's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in their lives and the, and the difference between that brother and somebody who God has given them over I mean and we see the evidences in the rest of Romans about what it looks like when God gives somebody over and I think kind of even tying in with what Sean had to say that 
you know, what makes this so, what makes this more heinous is that it's, it's almost asserting absolute autonomy. You know, not only your, your, not only your, your, uh, your mind and your soul, but even your body, you're rejecting God and, and, uh, and his commandment and what he's revealed in his word. And so, um, the, uh, and in nature. Right, because you can look at that part and say that. Right, goes so there. it's almost the. I mean, it's almost. Um, well, you know. You know, they, it's becoming foolish. It's, it's exchanging the glory of of God for uh, incorruptible God into the image of corruptible man. Mm -hmm. And so, in some, I think of it in some ways, it's asserting absolute autonomy over God, mm -hmm. and uh, and that's what makes it. Um, more heinous. Yeah. So and so, so for fathers, particularly for fathers, um, there's actually a really good commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, and this falls under question 41 about um, the uh, commandment on uh, adultery. He lists seven, six or seven areas in this commentary on um, areas that uh, fall under the commandment and mm -hmm. this is part of it and it's really I think it's really good instructive to go through those with your with your sons and daughters but more so for sons so that you can and, and, and this this catechism is probably helpful as well to to um, to help them to be able to identify where they're struggling and they're, where they're tempting. And, uh, and the catechism is particularly helpful with how to, what God has to say about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that they can recognize their temptations and the sin that's in them and confess it and have prayer in a, in a, uh, in a real nurturing and admonition mm -hmm. uh, situation. Because... You know, growing up, the uh, I would say that, um, and even today, that the church really hasn't dealt very well with um, a person who says, "Hey, I'm struggling with homosexuality." Mm -hmm. I know you're not. You know, you can't. You know, and 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 so instead of recognizing that. Um, you know, that sin is something internal. So this is something that they didn't learn from, you know, even from pornography or from this or that or the other. And they're going to be, because that's something that they struggle with, that uh, Satan and, the, and, and all the demons are hell, of hell are going to do everything they can to entice you further and further into it. And that's where, um, I think that's where we need to be uh, better ministers of the word and better shepherds in the church and in the home to address those kind of things. Now, I think that's, that's a good thought about raising your your children, um, sons and daughters, how to view and handle temptation. Right. right? To recognize it first. Because I think what we see is a lot of times, you know, because in, in Christian homes, children are, right. 
insulated in some way, but when they go out on their own, they're freer to their temptations than they right. were before. Yeah. And if you haven't taught them how to work through it, to process mm -hmm. it, how to rightly view it, um, they're likely at least going to go through a season, possibly for the rest of their lives, be given over to it. Mm -hmm. right? Because they don't really know how to think about it. Like, you know, I'm an adult now. I, I can do what I want. I don't have to listen to my mom and dad anymore. I don't just have to do what they say. But if you've taught your child to have their mind attuned to the Lord mm -hmm. and what his truth is, by his grace, you train them up in the way they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. Yeah, I like it in question 109, the answer, does God forbid in this commandment, does, does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Answer, since we, body and soul, are temple, tempers, temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and this, I like this part especially, and whatever may entice us mm -hmm. to unchastity. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's interesting too, and I don't know, I, I need to study more to say about it. In Romans 1, verse 24, the, there's, at least in the New King James, uh, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, and, and uncleanness is a very, very particular word that's just throughout particular, and, you know, Leviticus, mm -hmm. when it's talking right. about all the, so it's, it's, it's definitely in reference to um, sexual behavior and sexual relations. Mm -hmm. And what does uncleanness do? It, it puts us out of, it puts us out of the church. You know, you cannot, you know, you you know, it puts it separates us from God's people. Mm -hmm. It makes us unholy. You can't enter it. Right. Yeah. Uh, the larger catechism on question 99 gives rules to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments. And that last phrase you just talked about, mm -hmm. you were saying that you really liked, it says that this is one of the rules, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations mm -hmm. thereof too. So it's no, right. saying the same thing, but just mm -hmm. a little bit different language. So I've kept you all longer than I normally do. Thank you for your patience. Um, but I think this, this is a tremendously important issue. Um, my generation uh, has begun to deal with it. But I'm hearing, and I've read somewhere, that in some states that you're starting to get to about 50% of kids in middle school age who are identifying mm -hmm. as something other than traditional, right? They want to say they're non-binary, they want to say they're pansexual, asexual, they're homosexual, they're Dinos transgender. Dinosaurs. Yeah, right? Fur, fur, furries, you know what they call them? Um, they even have at Savannah Riverside litter boxes in some of the bathrooms for adults that identify as cats. They have it in public schools. 
right? It's just like, what? <laughs> I mean, that's, it's here. And the Lord, as he often does, is going to be saving people mm-hmm. from that background. Yeah. And we got to be prepared to handle it. Mm-hmm. And confront it whenever we need to fight in the street about it. That's the imagery that Rosaria Butterfield used. Uh, she said, we've played too nice about this for too long. It's time to fight in the street. Anyway. She wrote the foreword to the catechism. So. Good. All right, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this uh, time of reflection, meditation. Uh, we pray that uh, you would use your truth to lead us uh, to more clearer thinking. Your word, which we've read and reflected upon, would lead us uh, to be equipped for every good work. And you promise that your word does that. Um, Please forgive us of our own sin, especially sexual sins. uh, And have mercy upon us, forgive us, and restore us to you. um, And enable us to be uh, sanctified vessels uh, used to bring uh, clarity within your kingdom but also to bring those from outside of your kingdom into a relationship with Christ uh, by faith. Uh, Again, we ask you to prepare us for the Lord's Day tomorrow, that we would know that the glories of uh, in Christ, uh, there are no distinctions, uh, qualifications, all receive the same salvation. rejoice that we are all made sons of daughters in God and of God in Christ. Think of the, the promise, I think it's in Isaiah, that even the eunuch will be fruitful in the heavenly kingdom. Uh, what, an, what an image that is. Uh, use it to prepare us for worship and to honor you the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.